0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. He was the most unusual and sadistic criminal. This was a rapist and killer who lurked in broad daylight. He most often struck during the warmer months, generally between April and October. He had a sick penchant for using a rope or cord to subdue his victims. He would quickly, deftly wrap the cord around his victim's throat twice, rendering the woman unconscious, sometimes dead, and always leaving a distinctive mark, two deep red lines across the throat. The double ligature mark came to be regarded as this killer's calling card. From the Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe Welcome back, Murder Shilt bookies, to episode 34, Runners Beware, on the bike path murder by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. This is not one for the faint of heart. Oh my God, I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years' experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination with true crime into a podcast so I can share these stories with you. Each month, I'll discuss a book I've pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. Not a boring timeline, I assure you. I like to give you the story from the author's point of view. In the third episode of the trilogy, called Second Cast, I will delve into the paths not taken, the threads not pulled, add analysis and updates to the case that's pretty compelling. These episodes tend to have a surprising quality to them. So welcome to 34! A little update. You've heard me speak of my sister over this last year. Terry passed away on January 11th, 2022 after a long series of illnesses. And I am really grateful for the years we had together. She found us, her biological family, in 2003. It was a miracle to me that I had a sister after years of praying for my parents to produce one. And that just didn't happen. But Terry, who had been put up for adoption before my parents' marriage, found us. She quickly became my sissy, my warm, funny, quirky sister, who loved life to the fullest. We were really peas in a pod, and we had such good times together, sharing clothes, music, books. We had the same sweaters in our closet and didn't realize it. She moved in with me in the fall of 2020, and we really thought this was the beginning of a great adventure together. However, her health began to decline very quickly, and we were playing whack-a-mole with a variety of medical issues that arose and in the midst of a pandemic. I miss her. I love her always, and I'm relieved that she is at peace the end of an era, but it was a wonderful era with great memories. And I'm doing okay. We're okay. Family's okay. So, book club. What snack and drink do I bring to you today? All right, since we're focused on the Buffalo, New York area, the perfect snack are peanut sticks. This recipe that I'm talking about is from Emma Schmidt. Marsh fry cakes covered in chopped peanuts. This is a delicious delicacy that appears to be exclusive to Western New York. This recipe I found dates back to 1937. This is a bit more complicated recipe than I usually present, but it is well worth the effort. The ingredients for the peanut sticks are simple enough, though. Separate the eggs, get whites and yolks, cup of cold water, cup of flour, baking soda, vanilla extract, mix. Pour into a pan, bake for 45 minutes. Now, while this is happening, you have to make the glaze. confectioner sugar, butter, milk, vanilla. When you take the pan out of the oven, you let them cool, cut them into squares, and then you coat them with the glaze. Coat the sticks on all five sides and then roll into chopped peanuts. Now, this makes about 24 sticks. They are really good, and I am really jealous of Western New York State because I have to make them myself. And I can't buy them at Paula's Donuts in Conda I have to make my own. Now, my wine pairing for this is a Semi-Sweet David Harvey Columbia Valley Reesling 2022 from Naked Wines. It smacks of a pear, a peach, hint of candied apple, which is where the semi-sweet flavor comes from, and complements the savory, spicy tang of the nuts on the peanut sticks. So I really like this. I highly recommend this combo for the palate. The David Harvey Columbia Valley recent costs about $16 a bottle. So it's quality wine for a really moderate price. And I do really enjoy naked wines. The subscription really makes it easy to find the perfect wine pairing for any occasion. So let's have our snacks. Let's have our wine and we are ready to explore this fascinating case. Thank you, Matthew Beaker and Michael Beebe. Both Matthew Becker and Michael Beebe are reporters from the Buffalo News. Becker is the chief of the Breaking News Criminal Justice Desk, and she also wrote Uniquely Kentucky, a fun book of interesting facts about the state of Kentucky that it guess is a must-read for Kentucky residents. Let me know. Bebe covers crime and courts and has won numerous awards from the Associated Press, Newspaper Publishers Association, and the National Press. They co-authored The Bike Path Killer, which was published in 2009 coming in at about 332 pages. Pages that you are absolutely mesmerized while reading, completely absorbed. You can consume this book because you can't put it down. Once again, murder bookies, I really strongly suggest you read The Bike Path Killer. You haven't read along with me already. It is so engrossing, so detailed, so well done, and I hate reading things out, and I have to do so. So read the book, listen to the audiobook, whatever. Who's had a creepy feeling that you're being watched? Probably most of us. Well, Susie Coggins did. The path she was taking cut through a wooded area that was difficult to see from the road. So, looking around, she saw no one. But she still had that get out of this place feeling. It was then she heard a noise and saw a stocking man, about five foot eight, dark complexion, dark combed back hair with a full mustache. In his hand, he had a clothesline. Susie thought this was a leash, probably for a dog. Pausing to let the man go past her, she took a drag on her cigarette. And then things happened quickly. The rope came around her neck, being unable to breathe, this very angry man pulling on her. She's thinking, oh my God, he's going to kill me? Fast forward to the morning of September 29, 2006. Joan Diver would never have guessed that she would be brought face-to-face with an unrelenting evil that had plagued Western New York State for over three decades. It was a normal day in Clarence, New York. Joan was a critical care nurse who had taken time off from her career to raise her four children with husband Stephen Diver, a chemistry professor at the University of Buffalo, or U.B. Conrad was 14, Colin was 12, Claudine 9, and Little Carter 4. The divers planned for Joan to return to work next year when Carter would begin kindergarten. After coffee together that morning, Stephen and the kids went off to work and school, while Joan dropped little Carter off at pre-K. As every mom of a young child can relate, Joan would have the next three glorious hours to herself. As keeping healthy was important to her, Joan chose to go for a run. Now she had two routes that she'd run, one ran west on the Road, and the other was just down the street on Salt Road, going east. A parking lot ran across Salt Road, and Joan liked to leave her car there, so when she exercised along the five point six mile long path, she could then get back to her car. The town of Clarence consisted of middle to upper-class families, grassy lawns, and mature trees. Winters were cold and snowy with lots of SUVs in the wealthier parts of town. Houses were spacious. New, huge lots, beautiful pools that were enjoyed joy during the short summers. All in all, it was a lovely place to raise a family and enjoy the lives the divers had assembled. They moved to Clarence three years after the last attack by the serial rapist killer who was plaguing the Buffalo area. This guy attacked in isolated locations along bike paths in broad daylight during the warmer months between April and October, like I said in the opening. He's a very unusual guy. He used go garage with frightening efficiency, wrap it around women's throats, rendering them unconscious and or dead. And the double ligature marks, that is his signature. In 1994, he'd raped a 14-year-old girl heading to her school, and then mysteriously, the string of attacks ended. Why had the bike path rapist stopped? Was he in jail? Had he moved away? Was he dead? The police speculated as the years began to roll by, increasing a renewed sense of security for the women using the bike paths. The murders began at the University of Buffalo when 22-year-old Linda Yellen was attacked while running along the Ellicott Creek. Yanked from the path by a ligature, she was raped and strangled. Her murder sent shockwaves across the area, but especially in Amherst, a town that consistently ranked two or three as one of the safest cities in America. Every year since Linda's death, UB sponsored a memorial race in her honor, held on or about the anniversary of her death, September 29, 1990. That Joan was running on September 29, 1994, 16 years after the first rape, and the fourth anniversary of the first murder by the bike path request. This hadn't even crossed her mind. Not even when she turned around and saw a stocky middle-aged man with dark eyebrows, salt and pepper mustache closing in on her from behind with a cord in hand. Pre-K ended at noon, but Jen was a no-show. The teacher informed the campus police who were really not alarmed, right? They receive calls like this every day and usually because someone was running late, and it was traffic time, was with a lover, and got carried away. Regardless, the Sheriff's Department was required to look into it. The Sheriff's Department patrolled the run by Sheriff Timothy Howard, who investigated crimes there in town and throughout the county. With a shoestring budget, the Crime Scene Investigation Unit had been disbanded. Remember? Really safe, safe area? And the Detective Bureau, which once boasted 40 members, was down to a dozen. The next events are going to tax this bare-bones department to the max. Noting that Joan had not shown up to get Carter, Stephen Diver called 911 at 12.42 p.m., requesting the deputy from the Erie County Sheriff's Office come to his house. Stephen called back at 1.15 p.m., telling the dispatcher he'd gone home and his wife was not there. He'd driven to the Salt Road parking lot, where he spotted his wife's Blue Ford SUV. Inside the car was a full one liter Poland Spring bottle of water, meaning Joan had not returned from her run, as she would have drank it down. Stephen also explained that he had seen a white pickup truck in the lot. Dispatch said that the deputy was in route. Ten minutes later, it was Carter's pre-K teacher, Wendy Kecklenburg's turn to call 911. She was at the driver home in Carter, Stephen had returned to the bike path to look for Joan. Deputy Michael D'Alfonso headed towards the lot, pulling up on Salt Road at 1.24 p.m. He noted Stephen's car, but there was no blue SUV, nor was there a white pickup. Stephen Driver was on his bike, telling D'Alfonso that his wife's car was gone, and hopefully Joan was on her way back home. But, no, Joan had not returned home. Alfonso decided a search was warranted. Lieutenant Ron Kenyon felt there might be more to this in a particular missing person's case. Maybe she'd been injured while running? Kenyon sent more deputies out to search the bike path for Joan. But he wondered, what was up with seeing Joan's SUV and then it disappearing? 11 minutes elapsed between driver telling 911 about her car and Alfonso arriving to see an empty watch. It was really, really strange. By 2:30 p.m., all terrain vehicles had arrived, and deputies did locate a blue SUV parked over on Schisler Road near the bike path. When informed that they'd located her car, Stephen was baffled. Joe never parked on Schisler. Lieutenant Kenyon now kicked this up to a full-scale search. A command post was sent up at the Clarence Firehouse the sheriff's huge RV mobile command center with a huge communication hub. Almost 80 firefighters from 11 surrounding volunteer departments arrived to help. This SWAT team deployed. The working theory was that Joan had been injured along the bike path, so time was of the essence. Splitting into two teams, one working from the west, the other the east, they both had thermal imaging cameras to search the thick brush that ran along the bike path. They borrowed a helicopter from the border patrol equipped with infrared cameras too. The canine handlers brought a scent tracking girl, Hope, to try to find Joan. Hope picked up on her scent at the Salt Road parking lot, but then lost it again. As the husband and potential suspect, Stephen Diver was questioned. They grilled him for six hours, asking him to write out a statement detailing everything he could recall from that morning. Stephen also accompanied them as they drove up and down the bike path and all over Florence. Steve pointed out places he thought they should look for Joan. Quote, this this is a good spot, end quote. Oh no, Stephen doesn't realize it, but he is throwing up huge red flags, red mountains, all over the place. This poor guy is trying to help, but he's acting guilty as hell. No surprise, the detectives think that Stephen's behavior is off. And a lot of what he's saying is really strange. The search went on until about 5 a.m., now September 30th. With no results, the police concluded that Joan was not lying injured along the bike path. And they also realized that if she was out there, she was likely dead. It was time to bring in cadaver dogs. By 3 p.m. that afternoon, the searchers literally were falling all over each other. And the search was called off. Yes, it was called off. Steven Diver is stunned. All right, he knew that Joan was out there along the bike path. Neighbors and friends came over to continue the search, including a Boy Scout troop that Joan had volunteered for. The next day, around 2.10 p.m., one of the boys saw something, and it was Joan Diver. Eyes shut, face bloodied, her running shorts had been pulled down, a Navy sweatshirt covered her torso. Sheriff Sergeant Greg Savage was shocked. He had searched right there, right past where Joan was found, and it was really obvious that this was no accident. Called to the scene, yellow crime tape went up as a perimeter was established. They examined Joan, noting she was naked from the waist down with two purple lines across her neck and chin. Oh my god, how is this, the bike path rapist returned. Detective Alan Mazansky got the call saying that Joan was now a homicide. He also got a call from Amherst PD officer, Lieutenant Kevin Hoffman. Quote, Hey Al, do you know what the 29th is? End quote. had no idea. Hoffman replied, quote, It's Linda Yallin Day. End quote. It was the anniversary of her murder. Now retired, Amherst police detective Ray Kolemzak was still fixated on finding Linda Yallon's killer, as he had been for the 14 years he'd worked on the case. Retired two years earlier, when he heard Joan was missing, his heart sank. Realizing what day it was, Ray knew this was no coincidence. He knew he's back. For Ray, it began in 1990 with the second fight path rape. The first rape occurred on August twenty-fourth, 1989, when a 14-year-old girl walking to cheering practice was assaulted. During the investigation, it was uncovered that there had been a series of sexual assaults in Buffalo that had some similarities. In 1986, two high school girls were raped and a woman jogger attacked in the park, both during the day. May thirty-first, 1990, a rapist struck again. At 7.30 a.m., a 32-year-old secretary was walking along the Ellicott Creek bike path, as she did every day. Only this time, she was grabbed from behind. She never saw her assailant, who looped cords around her neck until she blacked out. A few hours later, Joggers uncovered the semi-conscious woman who was taken to the Millard Fillmore Suburban Hospital. She had been beaten, her eyes were swollen black and blue. The asphyxiation from the garot had blown up the blood vessels in her eyes in addition to being choked and raped. Since she was almost six foot tall and in very good physical shape, Ray Klimsek realized this guy had to be strong and connecting the dots, a serial rapist was at large. Knowing the rapist struck early in the morning, Klimsek started hiding in the brush along the bike trail from 5.30 a.m., waiting, watching, from May to September, and he gave up. You will not believe this. He gave up September ninth, 1990. Later that night, Ray got the call that a UB student had gone missing at the Ellicott Creek bike path, and he just knew instantly they had another victim. And why, why hadn't he struck when Ray had been watching for him? Why? Lindy Allen was a 22-year-old California girl who had transferred from college on Long Island to UB, majoring in communications. She was also trained for the New York City Marathon. My daughter has run that marathon, and believe me, it is not easy, and the training is grueling. Also, Linda must have been a really dedicated and remarkable athlete. By 9.30 p.m., Linda's roommates reported her missing. Campus and Amherst PD began looking for her, and around 5.30 p.m. the next day, her body was discovered. She was laying in a dark clearing, surrounded by brush, several yards off the bike path. One leg was pulled out of her pants, her bra was pulled down, her shirt over her head. Two pieces of duct tape covered her nose and mouth. Her eyes were wide. After the cheerleaders rape, Ray conferred with FBI profilers. Quote, look at those areas right here. No homes, completely isolated. This would be a great spot if our guy ever came back. End quote. Hey, be careful, Ray. That is what got Steven Diver in trouble, remember? Anyway, the case became national news, just as Joan Divers was becoming. Law enforcement was on red alert. Years would roll by, taking Klimsek to the FBI Academy at Quantico. Where he spoke with profiler Greg McCrary. Several points were noted. One, the killer was escalating in violence, rape alone didn't satisfy him, and he'd move on to killing. Two, he'd probably stay away from Amherst, striking elsewhere in the area where he felt most comfortable. Three, he likely led a very normal, unremarkable life. Now, this doesn't exactly point to the guy that we're looking for here, but listen, any information is helpful. Now, when he retired in 2002, Klimzak was bothered by this case because it was still active and there was nothing that he could do. Except he would drive along I-990 so he could look over the edge and down and see if anyone was working along the Ellicott Creek bike path. Or he could take a walk along Clarence bike paths that ran through his neighborhood, taking mental notes of everyone and every car he'd seen. And now the guy was back, almost striking in a section of the bike path Ray hadn't been watching again. Oh, this poor man. I can't imagine what he was put through. The general status of the entire population near BU was rocked by the intensity and fear of the murder of the wife of the UB professor. The university president emailed condolences and warned students to be careful that there was safety in numbers. The Erie Creek Sheriff's Office was stunned as well. They didn't have homicides, let along a serial killer. They requested anyone who'd been parked at the Soul Creek lot that day to please call the sheriff's office, and a local businessman offered a $100,000 reward to anyone who came forward with information leading to arrest and a conviction. Meanwhile, Dr. James Wotash, the medical examiner, issued a report indicating Joan had not only been strangled, as the parallel purple lines around her throat indicated, but had a terrific blow to her head, blunt force trauma as well. Her eyes had petechiae, the bursting of blood capillaries common in strangulation deaths. Dr. Wartash also reported that Joan had a deeply lacerated lower lip, bruising on her face scalp, right shoulder, abrasions on her right leg and knee, Joan Diver had gone down fighting for her life. But the rape kit affirmed no evidence that she had been raped, despite her clothing being left in disarray. All victims of the bike path rapist had endured rape kit examinations, something unpleasant at best. All had indicated rape, but with Joan shown no evidence of sexual assault, the police began to think that maybe this wasn't the bike path killer case. So who had done this to John? The third of the time, it's the husband. So maybe it was Stephen, pondered Detective Greg Savage. Stephen reported his wife's vanishing car, only to have it miraculously appear on the park on Schistler. Next, when they pressed Stephen on whether he'd seen his wife's car when he arrived to the parking lot the second time, he said he couldn't remember. Couldn't remember, really? You're looking around for Joan, you're looking around for clues, but you couldn't remember or something like that. Now granted, he'd been extremely cooperative and he'd allowed the police to search her car, giving them spare keys. But again, that's a red mountain. Once Joan's body was found, the shift began. Asked to take a lie detector, Stephen Diver refused. They asked him to sign formal papers allowing the authorities to do a comprehensive search of the SUV, and he refused and told them to get a warrant. When they asked permission to bring dogs to his house to sniff for clues, he refused and lawyered up, raising law enforcement's eyebrows. Mind you, I believe you always have a lawyer before speaking to the police about anything. It is our right to have one during questioning. How many innocent people have been jammed up because they had nothing to hide and wanted to help? All for helping out the police. You have to be smart when you do so. Okay, and a lie detector tests do have false positives that do not help anybody, the potential suspect, or the police. So, Stephen is continuing to create Red Mountains for people. Three days after Joan's body is discovered, Stephen sent his three older children to school on the school bus. A school administrator called the sheriff's department, worried about the welfare of the children. As suspicions grew, Steve was oblivious. All right, He's too busy caring for his four motherless children, trying to help them cope, and he's planning a funeral. Day of the funeral, remembering the wonderful woman Joan had been to her friends and families, Detective Alan Mazansky was checking out Stephen's alibi. Multiple people interviewed put Stephen on campus at UB at the time of the death. Speaking to Joan's sister, she said their marriage was good, as solid as Joan had never given any indication of problems or tensions. Several residents did mention a strange man wearing thong-like shorts and a mask over his mouth. This is pre-COVID, guys. While jogging recently, a thong man was seen running in and out of the woods near some salt Road lock. One followed him and got his license plate, which Detective Dennis Fitzgibbon tracked to the car of 29-year-old man living in Amherst. He appeared nervous. He wouldn't make eye contact. He clutched his stomach as he was interviewed. Thong Man insisted he was nowhere near the Salt Road Pike path when the murder occurred. As the interview was occurring, the canine handlers gave the dog, Billy T., Joan sent, and then took her to Thongman's car. The dog tracked the scent from the warrant to the sheriff's office. So on October 11th, Fitch Gibbons obtained a search warrant for Thongman's apartment and car. They found some violent wrestling videos of men slamming women. A little red flag, I'm thinking. The apartment complex provided a video showing Thongman leaving his car at 9.41 a.m., and returning about noon, which was the perfect window for the murder of them to commit it. But, October 12th brought an unexpected development. A freak storm that dumped two feet of wet snow on Buffalo in the suburbs. Electricity went out, and law enforcement shifted to answering emergency calls. Joan Diver's case was going cold in a blizzard. Literally. Joan's funeral was held at the Urban Funeral Home the same day as the Buffalo News headline read, quote, "'Diver's husband, now less cooperative.'" End quote. Stephen looked horrible. His four children looked shell-shocked. And Hogan, a lawyer with Hogan and Woolley, whose children were taking advanced math classes with the Diver kids, was wondering if Stephen had killed Joan. One side of the coin. The other side of the coin... Diver looked terrible because he'd spent five hours weeping over the loss of Joan. After the bungled search the weekend before, remaining strong for his brood, the tragic end of a marriage that was growing stronger, Stephen just broke down. He later reflected, quote, The month of August 2006 was the best time of my life. Joan and I were like teenagers in love. Our family was whole, and we were living our life the way we wanted to live it end quote. They'd begun dating at the University of Utah and kept dating long distance when she worked at a hospital in Utah as Stephen was pursuing his PhD at the University of Wisconsin. Stephen proposed and Joan turned him down. Since he was six years younger, she was concerned that he really, really wasn't sure what he was doing. Persevering, Stephen proposed again and they were finally married. Their oldest boys were born while he was working on his doctorate Once completed, they moved to Boston, and Stephen did his postdoc. With child number three, he took a tenure track job at UB, winning a grant for $510,000 from the National Foundation of Science, and twice that much from the National Institute of Health. Life was good, until Joan was murdered, and it all came crashing down. Now, intellectually, Stephen knew that a third of all female homicide victims were killed by intimate partners. Divers since the detectives thought he was involved when he took them to the Salt Road lot where he had seen Joan's car. He said, quote, I wrote a long statement It was very detailed and it was very truthful and I'm not sure if they understood that I'm a scientist and I'm very observant and detail-oriented. I think that it was the detail in my statement that led to their concern that I was somehow misleading them, end quote. I'm married to a scientist. He's right. Believe me, observant, detail-oriented. Stephen gave him Joan's slippers to use with the tracking dogs and let the detectives examine the family's computer to see if Joan had received any threats or unusual email, although he thought it was absurd. Quote, The turning point was the map I drew. End quote. Stephen explained, It was a map of Joan's running route because detectives were searching by her car not where she ran, which made no sense to Stephen. Logically, he wanted to show them the path Joan usually took so they could search in those areas. Stephen pointed out the route while the detectives asked him to explain what had happened, urging him to guess. I hate it when the police ask you to guess. He identified two spots where he believed the woods were close to the path and where she could have been snatched. Then, they basically seized the map as evidence and left Stephen sitting there thinking, if she was hurt, she needs to be found fast. What the heck are they doing? When asked to take the lie detector, Stephen knew they were inadmissible in court. Why would a scientist take a test that did not meet scientific standards? Well, he said no and hired a lawyer. To his utter disbelief, they then called off the search for Joan. Neighbors rose up, being upstanders acting to find Joan with him, including the Boy Scout troop. Lieutenant Cannon advised them not to do a civilian search. Diver was not deterred. Ultimately, the Boy Scouts found Joan when law enforcement had failed, with tons of manpower, equipment, and time. Had the sheriff taken Stephen's advice and searched the most likely areas, Joan would have been found before three days had passed and the crime scene evidence was washed away by snow and rain. Once Joan was found, the Sheriff Department investigators arrived and seemed angry that she had been murdered. Quote, they basically demanded to speak to me despite my right to counsel. I was in distress in the living room trying to explain to our kids that their mother was dead. I was dull to it then, but in retrospect, this showed unbelievable insensitivity on their part, said Steve Diver. I think they were embarrassed that the Boy Scouts found the body when they had clearly failed to find the victim. I think this is pure ego and BS going on here and playing out in front of four grieving kids. Just a terrible way to treat the family. Stephen knew they could search the SUV, but given their attitude, he wanted the protection of a warrant, and his lawyer agreed. Meanwhile. The police had Stephen's statement analyzed by the NYPD, utilizing scientific content analysis, which theorizes that people sometimes say different things than they mean by the language that they choose. And I respect this as an important tool, and I've done this myself. We'll wait in here on this one. Stephen had written, quote, "We spoke about where we were going to eat dinner tonight, and about my idea of getting the kids." electric toothbrushes, and end quote. The analyst indicated that, quote, anything written in parentheses is not part of the statement, but is related to the statement, end quote. That? Okay. Now, I'm paraphrasing, the statement analyst writes, A, the existence of parentheses indicates that the statement did not come out of a vacuum, it is quite likely that the information included in the parentheses is truthful. B. Quote, we had spoke. End quote. Not we spoke. The subject used past tense indicating that the conversation was earlier. Well, that's kind of what past tense means. C. And as a formal conversation. D. Where'd go to dinner tonight. The subject gave the statement during the day. This analyst is a rocket scientist, I've got to tell you. Whoa. F, an electric toothbrush. One should note that when this specific activity is mentioned in the open statement, it indicates that the subject will conceal other information later on the statement and is likely about a relationship. Wow. No, never mention toothbrushes in a statement. Just, just note that for the future. Just skip over that part. Ooh. Eighteen pages later, the statement analyst came to the conclusion that the subject had committed the crime. Now, to counter all the negative media coverage, the Diver family issued a statement confirming that Stephen was cooperating with the police and that he'd already given permission to search Joan's SUV, and he'd already given a DNA sample, even though no DNA had been found on Joan's body. They hope that cleared up the matter and would keep the police force focused on the investigation. End quote. Well said. October 9th. Deputy Jim Maruso left patrol and shifted back to being the county's crime scene investigator. With no DNA on Joan's body, the search moved to her SUV. Jim took samples from everywhere he believed they'd have a chance to get some bottle of fluid or oil from a suspect. The driver's seat was pristine. This guy had cleaned the seat. Noting the uniform color, Maruso realized the perk had wiped down the steering wheel too. Maruso used masking tape to collect fibers from the front areas of the car, placing them in baggies. Then he swabbed the rearview mirror, the radio dial, the steering column the ignition switch, and anywhere else he thought that the guy might have touched. Nine hours later, Jim completed the arduous task. Dr. John Simich, the county forensic lab guy, took over. For the next five weeks, he systemically analyzed swab after swab. By November fifteenth, Dr. Simich had some answers. He called Ken Case, the assistant DA handling the diver homicide, and Simich spoke. Are you sitting down? I just finished the testing, the DNA from Diver. It's the bike path rapist, end quote. It was this guy. He was back. It was not Stephen. It was the bike path rapist. A drop of sweat DNA from the SUV had matched with a degree of certainty close to one in a trillion. Wasn't Thong Man. Wasn't Stephen Diver. It was the same guy who had been stalking and killing for decades. He was back after 12 years. Take that, statement analyst. Yeah. Sheriff Timothy Howard drew on his 25 years in law enforcement, and he decided to form a task force of experienced investigators who would go over every rape and murder of the bike path rapist. He had been allowed to go free for too long. A big concern was interdepartmental politics in western New York. Sheriff Tim realized how little interagency sharing had actually occurred, and it was time to get their acts together. He called John Maslow, Amherst police chief, and H. McCarthy Gibson, the Buffalo police commissioner, and explained the concept of a task force with no secrets and no holding back. There were 10 attacks attributed to the bike path rapist, Tim vowed he'd share all information from the Diver homicide, Amherst would share files from the 1990 Linda Gallen murder, and Buffalo would do the same with the rapes and the 1992 murder of Buffalo sex worker May Jane Maslow. It was his hope to bring in the New York State Police and FBI as well. Howard explained, quote, We wanted to have a fresh set of eyes looking at everything from a little different perspective than what was done before. End quote. Keep in mind, the Sheriff's Department was new to the bike path rapist case. Their only victim was Joan Diver and the budget cuts that had plagued the Sheriff's Department. The county's financial crisis had decimated many of the units now called upon to find his murderer. To add more stress, the Sheriff's Department had a black eye. In April 2006, Ralph Bucky Phillips, who would shot and killed a state trooper, escaped from the Erie County Correctional Facility. Well, that didn't go over well. Tough times for Sheriff Howard. who The next day came a press conference attended by Chief Maslow, Commissioner Gibson, D.A. Clark, and Captain George Brown of the State Police Bureau of Criminal Investigations. They announced the formation of the task force to identify and apprehend the bike path rapist whose DNA was irrefutably linked to the Jones Diver murder. Susie Coggins felt the floor drop from under her. She had not seen this coming. When she heard of Drone Diver's murder, she thought it was a cat. All the other times he'd struck, since the bike path rapist raped her, she'd felt it coming. She believed she could almost feel him growing itchy, could feel the pressure building. But with this last one, she didn't feel anything at all. Ever since she was a child, she'd had strange, unexplained extrasensory experiences. As a child, she recalled a friend of her parents dying. She told her mom that he'd come to visit her that night, and mom had to tell her, honey, he's, he's dead. Susie described what he was wearing, black suit, bow tie. Even though she had not gone to the funeral, Susie knew he'd been buried in a tuxedo. A flood of memories came back now, and she knew that Joan had been killed by her rapist. Back in 1986, Susie had summer school that Monday at Frontier Central High School in Hamburg. She had failed math, but it wasn't for lack of intelligence or effort. Susie just had a hard time with math. Boy, can I relate. Years later, she was diagnosed as dyslexic. As Susie's mom wasn't available to give her a ride, Susie began a 20-minute walk. A bitter angry girl back then, her rebellion landed her in the hospital the past two previous Mondays. Riding a dirt bike with her boyfriend, against parental orders, she cut her leg on a short piece of metal. Seventeen stitches later, she faced a furious mother and was absolutely banned from riding on the dirt bike. The following Monday, Susie defied her mother, getting on the dirt bike with two friends. Going so fast she couldn't hang on. Susie fell off and badly sprained her ankle, and this was hospital trick number two. On Monday, July 14th, Susie had run into a bunch of girls she couldn't stand and opted to take another path to school, the bike path. As Susie walked along, the brushy, isolated route, she felt an ominous foreboding come on her. Someone is watching them. Her murder book is Your gut, someone is watching Susie, but she went against her instincts, continued to walk along. And when she thought, quote, I'm going to the hospital today. That's weird. End quote. It would be the third Monday in a row that she'd been to the hospital and she hadn't predicted the first two, but then she had a jarring vision of her body lying naked in the bushes, which totally freaked her out. She heard a noise. Looking around, she saw a stocky man, about five foot eight, dark complexion, dark combed back hair, thick full mustache, carrying a clothesline in his hand. She figured it must be a dog leash, stopping as she waited for the man to pass her. Suddenly, she found something going around her neck, and then was up in the air and couldn't breathe. He was really angry, and she thought, oh my God, he's going to kill me. Dragged to the brush, Susie valiantly grabbed at him, trying to loosen the grip on her neck, and suddenly he let go. Legs buckling, she fell to the ground. Quote, Lie down. Take off your shirt, the man ordered. End quote. Susie complied. He threw it in her face and began to rape her. Susie pretended that this horrible stranger was her boyfriend, trying to think positive thoughts, trying to make this a little bit less scary. Then the man abruptly stopped. Susie believes it's because she wasn't as fearful, and she probably turned him off. Pushing her into the mud, he told her, quote, stay there for 20 minutes or I'll kill you, end quote, and he was gone in a flash running. Panicking, Susie got dressed while having a terrible feeling that he was still out there on the path waiting for her. She ran through the bushes and kept running until she got to one of the high school's fields. Susie was a sight, covered in mud, crazed with anger and fear. Someone went to fetch the nurse, who gently questioned Susie, quote, I was fucking raped, she said, unquote. Taken inside, doors shut, the nurse called the police, and Susie's premonition came true. She was at the hospital the third Monday in a row. From her ears down to the bottom of her neck was raw and bright red from where the rapist had choked her. Completing the rape kit was not fun, as Susie was overcome with pain fear, embarrassment. But she was alive, though. She met with two detectives from the Hamburg PD, Daniel Shea and Bobby Williams. They were kind, they were considerate of Susie, who had no love for the authorities, especially cops. Yet, they believed her story, they took her seriously, and she was grateful for that. And they swore they'd do everything they could to see him apprehended. The next few years were difficult for Susie, She and her boyfriend broke up because she just couldn't bear the idea of having sex with them after having associated thoughts of him with the rape. Six months after the rape, Susie refused to leave her house. If she did, she needed someone to go with her. Any dark-haired man with a mustache that she saw triggered a jolt. Oh my god, it's him, it's him. At the one-year anniversary of her rape, Susie had had enough. She went back to walk the bike path. Following the route she'd taken exactly a year ago, heart pounding out of her chest, Susie kept repeating, quote, If I go through this, it's not going to happen again, end quote. And it did not. Susie felt free for the first time in a year. She realized that she could be bitter, angry, and afraid of the world, or accept the fact that anyone's life can end at any moment. She went to counseling. And good for you, Susie, for getting help when you needed it. Bravo. She got her life together, marrying, having two kids, and went to college. Hearing about new victims of the bike path rapist was a trigger for her. Detective Shay and Williams called, and they did keep her informed as time rolled by. She came to examine mugshots shots because Shay and Williams had been so good to her. Eventually, she got to the point where she could forgive her rapist. She was wasting too much time on hating him. But now, after 12 years of silence, he was real again. And there's no question that he killed John Dyer. The monster was back. 19-year-old Christine Mazur was living in South Carolina when the phone call came with the 716 area code. Instantly, she knew something was up with the unsolved 1992 murder case of her mother, May Jane Mazar She had only been five years old when May Jane's body was found in the field off Exchange Street on the edge of downtown Buffalo. Only five, Christine hadn't attended her mother's funeral. Her grandmother, Elizabeth Phillips, May Jane's mother, kept track of new developments in the case for Christine all of these years. Today was the media column, television reporters from Buffalo. Learning of the new attack. Christine felt great sympathy, aching for what the new victim's families were enduring. That there was a terrible silver lining. The more crimes he committed, the more likely he'd be caught. May Jane Mazur stood out when one examined the victimology of the bike path rapist. The others were all students or career women. They were taking shortcuts to an isolated area or running on the bike paths. May Jane Mazur was a drug addict who turned to sex work to feed her self-destructive habit. Husband, David Mazur, described May Jane right before Thanksgiving 1992, quote, She smoked crack and she was like the devil. It wasn't my wife doing it. It was the drugs, end quote. May Jane hadn't always been like that. Born May Jane Elizabeth McCauley to an upper middle class family in Greenville, South Carolina. Her southern roots ran deep as her grandfather had been mayor of Greenville. Oldest of three siblings, she had a brother, Jack, and a sister, Joanne. Their childhood was idyllic, taking dancing lessons from tap to ballet, attending private schools, spending time outdoor doing tomboy antics for fun. May Jane loved to collect bugs, especially butterflies. As she got older, her horse Blackjack became a fixture in her life, and showing him in contests and winning numerous ribbons, In college, May Jane met and married David Mazza from Dunkirk, New York, about a 15-minute drive southwest of Buffalo. In college, May Jane had begun to dabble in drugs. With David working in an electronic assembly shop, May Jane began working in restaurants as a prep cook, working on her way up to be a chef. Christine was born in 1987. David said these were the two happiest years of his life. However, May Jane found she had easy access to drugs working in restaurants, and this became a very, very dangerous pastime. Diagnosed as bipolar, when she stayed on her medication, she was fine. But not liking it, she'd stopped taking it. And her mother indicated that this was when the troubles began. August 1987, May Jane discovered crack cocaine. And that was when their lives changed forever. She quit her job with going three, four-day benders and once cashed their tax refund check of $1,500, going through it in record time. And it's about $3,200 today. By spring 1991, David had had enough. When May Jane and Elizabeth were out, loaded all of his and his daughter's belongings in a car because they were going to go on a trip to Grandma's in Dunkirk. Ten months later, May Jane found them and joined them, pregnant. She'd stayed off drugs during her pregnancy and gave birth to a baby boy she put up for adoption. Sadly, May Jane relapsed. The allure of crack was just too appealing. Then she disappeared with David's car. David, however, agreed to drop car theft charges if she would agree to enter drug rehab for the third time. At rehab, May Jane met a man who had become her pimp. They checked into the Hotel Huron on September 11, 1992, where May Jane was seen in the company of many men who her pimp boyfriend called the meal ticket. David Mazur filed a missing persons report with the Buffalo PD. They told David that May Jane had been arrested twice for prostitution, horrifying David with disbelief. But key in all this May Jane had kept in touch with her mother, calling her at least twice a week, even when she'd been arrested. Broken-hearted, Elizabeth told May Jane that she loved her, no matter what, begging her to try and get some help. Christine also remembered her mother's struggle with drug addiction. Once she'd asked her, quote, why can't you stop using drugs? And May Jane replied, I just can't stop. I'm sorry. I'm trying. End quote. This is another story of drugs destroying a person and a family. I just haven't seen too much good out of using drugs, not at all. Just don't go there. It is just not worth the carnage left behind. Just don't October fourteenth nineteen ninety two was the last time David saw his wife. May Jane called him, sounding scared, concerned, and Dave drove to the hotel Huron. She was standing on the hotel steps and totally rejected him. David never saw her alive again. A week went by with no calls from May Jane to her mom, and Elizabeth had a sick pit in her stomach, horribly afraid for her daughter. November twenty-second, 1992, the family found May Jane's body with a black garbage bag over her head. Her killer had used a literature to murder her. Now David had to tell Christine her mother wasn't coming back and buried his face in his hands. Though there was a double ligature mark on May Jane's neck, the Buffalo PD did not connect it to the bike path rapist cases. She was just another crackhead hooker living a dangerous lifestyle. That gets my hackles up, murder bookies. May Jane certainly had her struggles, but she was a human being who was murdered. The value of her life is not diminished by her drug addiction. A killer is a killer who needs to be off the streets so all of our lives are safer. The Buffalo PD did think it might connect it to Rochester serial killer, Arthur Charcross, who was targeting sex workers, but they dug into this and couldn't find anything. The break came 12 years later when Erie County Crime Lab got a grant to test DNA from cold cases. The man who killed Linda Allen and had raped nine other women was the same one who had murdered May Jane Mazur, the bike path rapist. When Christine's phone rang with that 716 area code, she was in the hospital with her grandma, Elizabeth, who was suffering from colon cancer. Christine spoke with reporters, telling her grandma the news. Elizabeth remarked, quote, maybe they'll catch him before I die, end quote. What happened after the press conference by Sheriff Howard? Shockwaves went out the epicenter in Buffalo. The national media picked up the story and ran with it. Reporter Gene Warner, who had been writing about the case since the Gallen murder, wrote, quote, the bike path rapist has returned and authorities have DNA to prove it. Now, likely in his forties or fifties, the man who terrorized New York women, sexually assaulting nine and killing two between 1986 and 1994 has been linked to a third murder. End quote. Reporter Mackie Becker, co-author of this book, developed a timeline that linked the seven rapes and three murders. The DNA tied seven of the cases together. In the other three, the linkage was based on the modus operandi, the MO, how he attacked, how he killed, how he raped. After some discussion, the moniker changed to reflect the new level of depravity and barbarity of this guy. The Buffalo News headline was, DNA proves the bike path killer is back and it screamed out across the front page. Task Force formed. Sheriff Tim Howard made Scott Patronic, Chief of the Sheriff's Special Services, his main point man on it. A Buffalo native, Scott Patronic, graduated from Buffalo State College with a degree in physics. He earned his MS degree in computer science from James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and then went to work at Fisher Price, the toy company but it was in the process of being bought out by Mattel. Petronic decided to move on. He had taken the state police test as a law a couple years ago, scoring a hundred. Not bad, right? And he received a fortuitous letter offering him a job. Beginning as a road trooper, he moved to a task force combating child predators on the internet. Petronic saw his role at the task force as more administrative than investigative. However. He did have a significant amount of training in incident management. Stephen Negrelli, a lieutenant in the state police, would share managerial responsibilities. Stephen Negrelli was in the State Police Bureau of Criminal Investigation, felt that being on the bike path task force was an assignment he'd been preparing for his entire career. From a family of career law enforcement, beginning with his grandfather, his father and siblings were all in law enforcement. Another 14 relatives were current or retired police officers. That number of people is a whole police force for a small town. At the time of Joan Driver's death, Negrali was taking a seminar on the BTK serial killer, Dennis Rader, who had been arrested the year before. Rader killed 10 people in Wichita, Kansas between 1974 and 1991. He named himself BTK, Find, Torture, Kill, referencing his M.O. Turns out BTK was a local code enforcement officer, married with two children, had a lovely home, and was president of his church. Oh, and was a cold, murdering psychopath without an ounce of regret. Traumatized, the Raiders family had no idea, absolutely none, and this sad, painful pattern would repeat itself. At the seminar, McGrawley struck up a friendship with a Wichita detective, Otis Kelly. He chewed Kelly's ears off for five days, asking questions about how to set up such an investigation, which cold case files needed to be looked out, how old witnesses would be found and tracked down and re-interviewed. By the end, Scott McGrawley felt well-prepared to investigate this serial killer. Amherst offered up Lieutenant Joseph LaCourte, who had worked the Linda Gallen case since 1991. He'd been with the Amherst P.D. since 1979, and like McGrawley, had police officers in the family tree. Over the years, the Amherst P.D. had accumulated a great amount of data on the bike path killer. Thousands of files, photographs, mugshots, charts, detective worksheets, all held in binders dating back to the pre-computer era. To prevent a single tidbit of information from falling through the cracks, a system was adopted. Detectives dictated their notes into a tape recorder, which was transcribed by a secretary who typed them and cross-referenced them. The documents then went into the binder, organized by index, by page number and topic, including suspects. By 2006, it had hundreds of names and the indexing made it easy for someone to look up information on a past suspect. When N. Monin was named Amherst Chief Investigator, he began to focus on the Susie Coggins' case and concluded that the rapist seemed very familiar with the area. Using the binders, Ed Monin came up with two names, ruling one guy out immediately when he didn't fit the description. The second guy was a convicted rapist, David E. Alvier. Ed recalled a victim from Buffalo saying her attacker was named Dave. Was this a truth or a red heron? Don't know. But digging into Alvieri, Ed learned that he had just moved to North Carolina. Totally ignoring budget restrictions, Monin and Lacourt went to Charlotte to get Dave Alvieri's DNA, which would probably be difficult. They went through garbage at Alvieri's home. Zilch. They surveilled him at work, taking smoke breaks, grabbing the discarded butts. They were mailed back to Amherst for analysis, and there was no DNA. This was going to be frustrating. Realizing they needed to be more proactive, they decided to pose as reps of a children's dental charity, which would be at the upcoming NASCAR event. All right, way to think out of the box, guys. The plan was to say that they were collecting old toothbrushes For everyone donated, the money would be given to the charity. Donors would be given new toothbrushes. With fake name tags and a big flyer, they knocked on all the area's door. A kid answered the door and totally fell for it, handing over the family's toothbrushes. But then they got a call from their boss. No way could they do this. The DA thought that a seizure like this would not stand up in court. Ed and Joseph were crushed. They'd been so pumped up. So back at the Alvieri home, they rang the bell. Alvieri came to the door himself. Quote, what happened to our toothbrushes, end quote, he said as he signed their waiver. Deeply relieved, they sent the toothbrushes in for analysis, ready to arrest Alvieri, and the results came back in. Alvieri was not the bike path killer. Flabbergasted, the cops couldn't believe they were wrong, heading back to Buffalo. Silver lining? The Alvieri DNA came back to another unsolved rape from July 26, 1995, of a 14-year-old girl who'd been lured into the woods behind a mall. Shortly afterwards, a mentally disabled man was arrested for this rape. He was freed after spending five months in jail. The real rapist was found, and he would be sentenced 15 years in prison. A narcotics detective, Greg McCarthy, who's a cousin of McGraw's, of course, and Joseph Keats from the Violent Crime Task Force, Join the Bike Path Rapist Task Force. The Buffalo Chief of Detectives, Chodanis Delano, a rough old-school detective, also from a family of cops. I think that's a requirement to be on this task force. Join the task force. All task force members needed to be familiar with all 10 cases inside and out. Five cases in Buffalo, three in Amherst, one in Hamburg, and one in Clarence. Victimology was analyzed. Ages reached from 14 to 45. All were white women and isolated. Not very useful. But he didn't seem to have a type beyond vulnerable. The MO was very specific though. Choker the garot, rope or wire, he looped it around their necks twice to control the victims, often forcing them to walk a long distance to a preselected location of his rope. He gave direct orders before fleeing Told them to wait a period of time before moving, or he'd kill them. Given the national attention, the bike path killer case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. Every airing brought in a slew of tips. While every one of these tips was examined, the rest of the task force got down to basics, beginning with June 12, nineteen eighty-six, at nine p.m. When a forty-five-year-old woman went for a jog in Delaware Park around White Lake. A runner in a gray jogging suit, was he wearing a whistle? came running towards her as she passed the life-size replica of David, Michelangelo's bronze masterpiece. As he passed, she felt something loop around her neck and tighten. She struggled to get her hand underneath whatever it was, which got tighter and tighter. He said, quote, shut up and walk, don't resist and you won't get hurt, end quote, and he forced her towards an area of underbrush, not tall, five nine at the most, short dark hair, dark mustache, likely Italian, she thought, quote, remove your shorts and panties, put your shorts over your head, he commanded, end quote, she complied, making her lie down, he got on top and waved her, when done, he gave her one last order, quote, give me 10 minutes, end quote, and tighten the girl one more time, pulling until she passed out. They realized a series of rapes had occurred in roughly the same area a few years earlier, but a suspect had been arrested and was about to go on trial, and runners had begun to let their guard down when this woman was attacked. On July 14, 1986, Susie Coggins' assault, in Hamburg came next, followed by the June tenth, 1988, rape of a 16 year old student at Riverside High School who was really looking forward to summer break. She took a shortcut along the old railroad tracks on her way to school. Just after 9 a.m., she noticed a man walking towards her, maybe 55, 170 pounds, brown hair, facial stubble, wearing a plaid shirt, blue workman's pants, and a blue baseball cap. Just as he passed her, the garot wrapped around her throat, and he seized control, dragging her towards a junkyard about two football fields away. Quote, I just got out of prison for raping and killing a girl, end quote. He taunted the terrified girl. Barking orders, she did as he directed, duck taking her eyes and mouth shut. She let out a muffled scream quote, Shut up You're gonna give me trouble. I'm gonna kill you if you give me trouble. End quote. He raped her on the ground, Quote, lie here for twenty minutes, end quote, as he ran away. A year later, may first, nineteen eighty nine, another Riverside High School student was taking the railroad shortcut. It was seven forty five AM, and she noticed a white man in a blue jogging suit with a baseball cap coming at her, flashing a smile. After walking past him, there was a noise and she turned to see him running back towards her rope in his hand. He caught up to her quickly wrapping the rope around her neck tightly. Quote, My name is Dave. Shut up or I'll kill you. End quote. He first heard to walk behind an abandoned building. Quote, I want a piece of ass. End quote. He told the teenager, while handing her white surgical tape to put across her eyes. He raped her from the front and behind. Quote, Take off your shirt to give me more time to get away. Stay here for ten minutes. End quote. It didn't take long for the Buffalo PD to link this case to the junkyard rape in 1988. The next three times the evil monster struck was on the Amherst bike paths. The morning of August 24th, 1989, a 14 year old girl had spent the night at her friend's house. On her way to cheerleading practice at Sweet Home High School, she took the Willow Ridge bike path. Walking along, she was suddenly attacked from behind a rope around her neck, pulling her backward. Quote, you scream, you die. I'm a little horny. End quote. She pushed him along the path until she was face to face with the man. Dark brown hair, mustache, Hispanic, maybe Mexican, she thought. He ripped her bra, pulled down her pants, forced the laces from her sneakers, and tied her hands behind her back. He used medicinal tape to wrap around her wrists and shut her eyes and mouth. Tightening the rope to keep her under control, he said, quote, you're my third, end quote, and then choked her into unconsciousness. Revived, he told her to stay put and choked her again until she passed out. An hour later, she regained consciousness, stumbled onto the path where some joggers found her. He raped his next victim on May 31st, 1990, a secretary keeping fit for ice skating by walking each day. The last Amherst victim was Linda Yellen, who was the first murder victim. Two years later, he killed May Jane Mazur on or about October 30, 1992. October 19, 1994, another Riverside High School student was sexually assaulted. Oh, the school had to be flipping out by now, reviewing security protocols, revising student services. I cannot even imagine the terror felt by the staff, the students, the community. Oh, oh my God. A few years had passed since the last rape along the railroad shortcut, and the teenage girl was heading to school about 7.45 a.m. when he grabbed her from behind with his garage. Quote, if you move or scream, I'll kill you. End quote. He ripped off her clothes and made her lie down. Quote, how old are you? Did you ever have sex before? end quote. Taping her eyes, he bound her wrists together behind her, putting her pants over her head and raped her. But he let her live, unlike the previous two victims. Quote, you can leave in a half an hour, end quote. And then he scurried away. And then he vanished for 12 long years, dormant, until he choked and killed Joan Driver. And that concludes episode 34, Runners Beware, of The Bike Path Killer by Matthew Beaker and Michael Beebe. Be sure to read the book. It is not possible for me to cover all the twists and turns that the authors have delved into I hate cutting parts out. I really do. So you have to read the book, and you will love it as much as I do, I'm sure. And my choice for our next book is Unsolved, The JonBenet Murder 25 Years Later by Paula Woodward. After the murder of John Benet Ramsey, rumors and misinformation planted by Boulder, Colorado law enforcement sped across the nation and the world. Suspicion immediately fell on the family, Lowell Woodward was one of the few journalists who had reported the family side of the story. Unsolved sets the record straight, exposing a 25-year conspiracy to convict John and Patsy Ramsey by law enforcement, who acted with arrogance, insecurity, and incompetence. There are new interviews with John and Jane Ramsey and son John Andrew who speak with stunning candor interwoven throughout the book is expert commentary on what the actual evidence shows deconstructing the falsehoods that haunt the case. Can this killer be caught? Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee if you can. I'm on me a coffee that's murder shelf. Bkcb. The link is on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Both will really help us grow the podcast and make new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. Follow me or subscribe to my show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Sticker, Podbean, wherever you can find podcasts. Let our episodes pop right into your feed. Until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material and snack and drink information for the Bike Path Killer Trilogy is found on my blog as well. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosina and lyrics by Otto Harbeck.